Hello, hello, and welcome to the 21 Soul Music Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this show, I share intimate interviews with musicians from around the world. In my role at Ropeadope, I interview each artist as they prepare for their next release. I want to get some backstory, write a narrative, and have a general understanding of why they made the record. Tonight on the show, Mr. Robert Sput Seawright, raised in Dallas, a collaborator with and an influencer of many, from God's Property to Snarky Puppy and Terrace Martin to Snoop Dogg. With multiple Grammys, Sput has been a player in so many places, and yet his strongest position is in the producer's chair. He understands and respects the creative process from both sides, and his respect for his bandmate in Ghost Note, Mr. Nate Worth, is evident at every turn. When he speaks of Nate, Sput marvels at his openness to new styles and experiences and his thorough hands-on research in the world of percussion. Their new album together, under the name Ghost Note, is called Swagism. Sput's collaboration with Nate is well beyond simple description. These are accomplished musicians, steeled by necessity, driven by the groove, and determined to reach people. Sput speaks of his friendship with Nate and the process of them becoming, in his own words, one drummer. I have no idea where to start with Spud Seawright. I mean, the history is way too long and complex to uh, get everything down on paper. <laughs> but uh, I had a really great chat with Nate the other day and started to get you know, some basis of understanding of how Ghost Note evolved. When did you know that, you know, there was something really dynamic between you and Nate and decide that you wanted to do more work together? I mean, I'd say just going back to 11 years of planning together, you know, I had to, I mean, we, we kind of had to develop a way to play that was different than uh, in Snarky Puppy, obviously that was different than the drummers that came before. Because before I got there in that seat, the drums were always parts. They were written parts. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't a lot of creativity on the, on the, on the composition side, in the drums. It's like the creativity happened within the composition, not like the drummers wasn't writing the parts, you know? So, I think because I didn't really know the music, <laughs> I think that I, I just came in and not really knowing what these parts were. I, I mean, we were doing shows, so it was too late to even try to study stuff. I just had to learn on the curve. And um, Nate was very instrumental in helping me because in that band, in Snarky Puppy, there is no rehearsals. There is no, like, they just call you on a gig and they throw you to the wolves. Like, you have to do your own homework. In the long run, it helps you as a musician because of your ears, but it's just, it's just, it's something that's very terrifying, you know, to jump into, you know, and I had a little bit of an advantage because I was the keyboard player for years and I knew the music, I just not from a rhythmic perspective in terms of sitting at the drums chair. So I said, you know, maybe two or three, two or three years in, we started having this style of playing together develop and we had these unspoken rules because there's a lot of ways percussionists and drummers can step on each other's toes 
you know, especially a percussionist like Nate. He plays drums with sticks 50% of the time. So we had these unspoken rules that um, I will not give away, but um, we had these little secrets that we used to do. We had these these communications that we would just look at each other and we do. And then, so down through the years, it just turned into us being one drummer instead of two people playing on the stage and turning turning to us. I think the guys in the band noticed it first and they were like, man, that's pretty cool. You know what y'all doing, you know? And then I think, uh, well, maybe around 2009 or 2010, Mike noticed it, the band leader, and uh, he started allowing us to take drum solos together. And this is where the fun really started happening because now we were looking forward to take drum solos together instead of me being singled out or him being singled out. And we would just create in a way where it sounded like we rehearsed that stuff. Musically, we were playing as one, literally, and just letting letting the music, the vibes, and the rhythms just come to us and not thinking about it, not talking about it, not, you know, obviously the relationship uh, played a big factor in it because we lived together every day, you know, on the road and ate ate together, ate some of the same foods, you know, learning some of the same music at the same time, you know, listening to stuff, having the same cultural experiences together, um, traveling to different countries and different cities that we've never been in uh, together. Just having all of these kind of experiences kind of helped us as, you know, musicians actually just having all these social and personal experiences with with one another. So, I say after one show overseas, someone walked up to me and they signed an autograph. And it was like, hey, man, what song was that y'all were playing doing your solo? Is that something I can go find somewhere? And I joked about it. I was like, yeah, it's going to be on our record. <laughs> it'll be out soon. And uh, it'll be out soon. And uh, we, me, me and Nate looked at each other and we just started laughing so hard because he knew I was lying through my teeth. Um, we just, you know, it was one of those things where I was joking, and uh, maybe like eight months later, me and Nate were in conversation. He was like, "Man, we should do a record together." And I was like, "Yeah, me, I, 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 we should do a record together." I was like, "We should, we should do a record, just beats. Let's just put all our beats on the record." That's kind of where it where it started as a conversation, and uh, we just kept having that conversation. Uh, for the next month and then we just we were like we're not gonna talk about this we're gonna do it man we went in the studio on in, in one December the December of 2015 and we did it <laughs> I wanted to ask you quickly about you know because you know without without a tremendous amount of worldly influence you know in his earlier years he seems to have this just sort of adventurous, open to anything, open to any culture kind of vibe to him. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, it's definitely accurate. First of all, he's a drummer. So in terms of being a drummer, there's so many ways you can go there. You know, he's a percussionist. So the thing about choosing that as an instrument, you have to learn so many cultures of drumming 
so many instruments, you know, that you have to discover. Mm-hmm. And they're all fascinating. All have different techniques and different ways to play. And they all represent something different. So as a percussionist, from from a drummer standpoint, I just have to learn patterns. I have to learn what the patterns mean on in the kit. But for a percussionist, they have to there are instruments that they have to have to duplicate or to represent the culture of or whatever genre of a style of drums that they that they're playing. He has to be world traveled. He has to be world. He has to. He has to know everything there is about that instrument in the culture to be able to play it. So yes. I yeah. just think as a, as a percussion player, it does present. It, it does give you. It doesn't give you an option not to be open. You know what I'm saying? And, right. Um, I think the world musically. Just to learn how to do it, right? Right. So I don't. I don't think it gives you an op- option not to be open. But the thing is, so many guys don't take that option. So many guys stick to what they want to do and stick to it very strongly. Some guys just stay in the Latin community. Some guys just stay in the groove community, and that's it. But I honestly think that the reason why. People like what we do is because of Nate's awareness of every possible uh, genre mm-hmm. in the drums. Like he, 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 he's a hip hop fan. He's a producer. He's a fan of Dilla. He's also a fan of of Latin. He's a fan of Giovanni Allegro. So I mean, he's also a fan of Afro the Afro beat. You know, Tony Allen. He's also a fan. I mean, like you know, what I'm saying his his thing is also a fan of Brazilian music. He's also a fan of Indian music. He's also, you know, what I'm saying like his his thing goes so like he he studies all of this stuff because he actually likes it, you know. And so he brings that stuff to the table. I mean, like we're we're not we're not authentically European, you know. what I'm saying like in terms of where we grew up. And um, so sometimes some of those countries, if you're playing their style of music, it's disrespectful to infuse it with something else. But in America, <laughs> we don't follow those rules. We just, with anything we learn, we take it and we incorporate it in the midst of what we're doing. And that's what creates a new sound. And and that's what we've been able to do. If if Nathan have all of those things and all those, those experiences with all those different uh, genres of drumming, we wouldn't be able to be as versatile as we are as a pair, you know. So I really appreciate that because it taught this it's helped me and taught me a whole lot as well. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I asked Nate this question and I wanted to ask you, do you have any basis in history of somebody who has done what you're doing? I mean there's no reference point, is there? No. I mean if you ask if you ask if you ask me no. Um, there, there are people that I've seen that have had the ability to play together in the most, in, in a similar form. Um, uh, but did they go and do records and then did they go start a band doing it? No, that's never been done. Um, but you, you've had, I've seen Steve Gadd and Ralph McDonald play together in ways where it was phenomenal, you know, and, and. 
I've seen there, you know, Quest Love and a guy named Frank Knuckles who Frankie yeah. Knuckles who um played in Roots together for years. They, you know, they they were a pair. They did everything together. They was always making sure that, you know, they were doing things together and making music together. So in terms of that visually I've seen it, but I don't think the movement in terms of the movement, I, I don't think it's ever been done before. And I mean, it's not something that I pay attention to or even care about, but um, but um, I, I do think what we're doing is most unique to, to anything out there that's ever been done. One of the things that struck me is that, you know, this starts with a relationship, a musical relationship, you know, and like you said, you're hanging out together uh, between the two of you, but then it, it doesn't seem to stop expanding into other and evolving into other styles. And I think this new record is a pretty serious demonstration of that. Is it just that you have a starting point and there is no end point? <laughs> you just, just let it flow kind of fun? Yeah, I think that's the attitude we've adapted because we had to. Um, when we started this band, it wasn't a band. It was just a duo. Yeah. It was just a, it was just a duo. And uh, Nate has a, a, an amazing brother named Nick Worth, mm-hmm. a.k.a. The Galaxy, who uh, was on 50% of the Fortified record with us. Mm-hmm. And when we decided that we wanted to take this show on the road, it was basically just me, Nate, and Nick. And Nick provided all of the things that we needed to be able to duplicate the music that we recorded to because we, we were in the studio overdubbing and doing, a, we were cloning ourselves in the studio because we were able to hide behind overdubs and, and just add whatever we wanted to the music. I was able to be a keyboard. I was an octopus. I was playing keys. I was doing everything that we could do with the luxury of the studio, but live, you don't have that. And our thing was in the beginning, our thing was always, let's try to do this without the electronics. You know, all of the, all of the drum samples that you see in electronics are taken from a real instrument. So let's use the real instruments to tell our story. The only electronic part of the situation would be Nick because he's doing and triggering all these things that we would need in the set. So, you know, make a long story short, everybody that's great always have their own own journey. And Nick obviously had his own journey. And um, before we got ready to do the second record, we were preparing all this music to include the different configurations that we had, which now we acquired a bass player. At this point, we acquired a bass player and a saxophone player. And each chair had substitutes in it. You know, there's a bass player named A.J. Brown, a saxophone player named Sylvester Onyejiata. And some at some point, A.J. couldn't show up, so we would call Manonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the the internet sensation. He's a phenomenal bass player. He's played for Prince, um, last standing bass player for Prince. Uh, and then 
there's a young guy playing Funky Knuckles, a band called Funky Knuckles. His name is Jonathan Monez. Mm-hmm. And between him and this other guy named what was it, uh, Mike Jelani Brooks, mm-hmm. they were subbing for Sylvester playing. So meanwhile, we uh, it would just be us and, you know, like a five or six piece band. And so when we got ready to do the record, I was like, you know what? Let's include all the guys. Let's include all the guys in this record that has been going out on the road with us. And, and let's, let's include all of these guys, you know? So we had made a plan to uh, include everybody that has been sticking it out and toughing it out with us on the road, you know, let them give, give them an opportunity to be on the record. And uh, Nick, uh, had a band. He has a band called Yak Attack that he's a founding leader of. Yak Attack in that season started blowing up and started doing a lot of dates. And him as a founding band leader had to make a decision to uh, do dates with his own band or dates with us. As a band leader, I, I mean, I've been there. <laughs> I've right. done that. I've I've done that with Snarky myself, and uh, I never want to put any member of the band in a position where they're making that kind of decision. I, I just feel like that's a no-brainer. You go and do your your thing. You take your date. You take the date that's with your band. You don't put yourself on it. I wouldn't want anybody to be under that kind of pressure because that's that's what we live for. We live for to have the opportunity to to do our own, to present our own music in our own voice, you know what I'm saying, in the way that we can. And if you get those opportunities, you just can't pass them up. So, you know, make a long story short, Nick dates were conflicting uh, our dates a whole lot. And he made a decision that he made, you know, for the next year that he, he was going to probably not be a core member of the group. And to be honest with you and to be totally candid with you, uh, it was something that that kind of stung a little bit for for Nate and I because we we valued his contribution to the group so that we've written songs to feature him and mm-hmm. and we immediately decided right it was this happened this information happened like two weeks before we got ready to go to New Orleans and do a recording for the new record so we had all this material that we were gonna do that was just Xylocent heavy, you know, for Nick and uh, everybody else. And so we get, you know, we had to regroup. And it forced us to really have a soul-searching and gut-wrenching thought process because now, you know, you're you're in panic. Now we're, we're having to really challenge our musicianship and uh, our creativity because now we're back at square one. But the session is less than 14 days from us you know and we're on tour <laughs> so we don't have time to, to to write anything and so we made an impulsive deci- decision to get there to the studio and start creating once we were arrived and let's just with the configuration of the people that we have let's just see what we can come up with let's see what happens and we let all of the music come. We let it come from that room. We didn't come. We didn't have a premeditated thought about this record before we walked in that studio. Wow. Wow. So we got there and we, we had 10 
uh, I think maybe two weeks to let it fly. And we, man, we let it fly. We had like 10 yeah. days, I'm sorry. We did let it fly. Yeah, 10 days. Yeah, we let it fly. And um, and from what we watched, we watched it go from song to song. And the more, the more we pulled off, the more that we, we completed a song idea, the more motivated and more encouraged we got about the next one. And it just kept happening until we got up to about 19 songs. Wow. <laughs> or 19 years. We don't have 19 complete songs, but some of them are interludes and mm-hmm. uh, some of them are in So it's just, yeah, it just started happening. So what I think what we decided to do, I mean, most, the, most of the songs were very, very funky. And really, me and Nate on this record took a back seat. There's only one song that features drum, a drum solo or a percussion solo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As as a band that's, mm-hmm. that's you know predominantly a drum band, it's only one song on the record that features the drum that features us. So well, there um, you go. We actually, right. No, I was saying we just took a backseat to it and, and featured all the other guys and, and let the music be more of what we were representing or what we were presenting and uh and just became a funk record or a very it's a very conscious record, but I think culturally it goes everywhere. But I think that the the underlying theme of the record is 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 funk. It's funk. It's a funk record. So funk needs to step up its game. <laughs> to be close to this one. Um, it's a fascinating story. Like, I, I mean, just to, because, you know, you can't go in and recreate that. You can't go in and, you know, and, and, and the guy two weeks before recording and, and be in such a risky situation on purpose, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. And what's fascinating to me is that you also didn't have a particular, uh, you know, we're we're making a drum record, right? Because that's what we are. You didn't have a definition of that. It just you let it fly, uh, and so this is like I think it feels like new ground for just to, for everybody because of that. Um, I was going to ask you about the writing process, but it seems like you you really defined that. Um, I want to ask you and just zoom out now if you can. The world of Robert Spud Seawright from all the incredible projects that you have played on, produced, been involved with, won Grammys for. How does Ghost Note fit into that whole, the world of Sput? Like, what does it mean to you in relation to all the other things that you do? It means more than any of that stuff, because this is my, this is my voice. This is, this is, I mean, obviously, I'm sharing this platform with people, but um, this is, you know, when when I go and pick up a pen or pick up an instrument and try to write music or produce, it's for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there are a lot of things you have to do to cater to what would fit them the best. And in this situation, I can just relax, breathe, exhale, and just be natural and be being as the most candid with what what I'm saying because it's my voice, uh, the message because it's my life, you know, the inspiration because it's 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 what was it's a gift that was given to me that I want to give back. So 
it's you know it's it's better to me the accolades and you know I tell people all the time I, I enjoy I enjoy the, the idea that I mean it's a good conversation to be able to say you have that many Grammys and and that kind of stuff but the thing about having Grammys checks don't come with Grammys so although you have <laughs> you have the little trophy you know but you still have to work and you still have to work hard at being uh, trying to be better. And trying to be, because even though you get recognized by these entities, that's not the reason why you do it. And I think a lot of times people get caught up in that and they, they tell themselves that because they didn't get the trophy or they didn't get recognized, that they're not doing the good work. But I think the good work comes from doing good work continuously. And people will continue, eventually people will recognize, you know, and, and if they didn't, you still got to do the good work because it's for the people that's supposed to get it, you know? And if I think, I, I think that is the reason why a lot of artists that really say, well, I'm not doing this for the money. That's what they mean. Because <laughs> when you're doing it, when you're not doing it for the money, you're helping people. When you're doing it for the money, you're helping yourself, you know? But when you're, doing, when you're not doing it for the money, you're helping other people. You're helping other people live longer. You're helping them be... You know, feel better, be more empowered to 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 whatever they do it. You know, to do it to do it better. You know, or or to or just to keep going. You know, and not just hang out, hang up the hat, or hang, you know, give up from every from every fail. So I, I I just I see it that way. So for me to be able to do music, my own music and have a platform and an audience to present it, to me, that's more gratifying than anything. And that's more freedom for me. You know, I mean, just having that kind of freedom in this day or in the industry. I mean, people are always talking about the industry and how it changed and how, but I think it changed better for the musician or the artist that always, that always supported the iconic artist. Mm -hmm. It changed, it changed and it affected the iconic artists artists yeah but i think for the people that were the unsung heroes it catapulted us into a situation where we now can be mentioned in the same breath as these iconic artists mm -hmm. because our work is important to that to those legacies and a lot of times if you give them the opportunity to say it they're not going to say it right so now we we have to, yeah. right so now, now that we have the opportunity to to create our own legacy in our own way, our own legacies in our own way, I think it's good that the industry changed. And so I'm not one of those guys that are so that's, that's so bummed out about it, you know. Well, I can certainly feel, feel that in the music, feel the positive energy and the and the joy and the excitement that you guys bring to it. Um, one last question, and that is, you know, the album starts off with, with a message from Nate. That is Nate in the beginning, right? Yeah. Yep, Nate, yep. Uh, Nate is quoting, he's quoting a poem that I wrote. Aha. Fascinating. That and I did not know. It's not in the liner notes. <laughs> I thought it'd be better for him to, I thought it'd be more powerful and more impacting for him to actually quote the poem. I agree with you many times over that that is it, it really is interesting 
and even more interesting that you handed that message to him uh, and, and basically gave him, you know, permission or authority to, to, to make those statements. Uh, well, well, first, first of all, first of all, we agreed on every, all the sentiments of that poem. You know, we yes. agreed upon it. Like that's, that's something that we totally saw eye to eye on. Um, and I mean, the elephant in the room is always something that people overlook, man. And it's like in our situation, we just don't allow ourselves to do that. Like we're, we're tech, we're physically and realistically in the most visual way you can see, we're, a, we're a duo. He's yeah. clearly white. I'm clearly black, mm-hmm. you know, and so we see things and we experience things in the same breath, in the same way. And if something affects me, obviously it affects him and vice versa. And even if it's something that we don't understand about each other's culture, we have the opportunity to talk about it. And we do that. Mm-hmm. So when the, polit- when the when the climate in our country shifted, and when I say shifted, I don't mean new things started happening. I just mean things started being exposed in ways that they were never exposed before. You know, I mean, like things that were in the dark and in the secret and under, not underlined now are being highlighted and under, underlined and it's in your face. Yeah. Um, I think that bothered us. It bothers us because now we're put in the situation where we have to, we, we have to talk about things and we have to, we have to deal with it because now because he's my friend and my brother, he's treated a certain way, you know, and it's, and those are the yeah. things, you know, we walk into a diner at a, at a small country uh, city or a town. We walk into a diner, they stare, they see a black guy with a white guy and they treat Nate the same way they, they would treat me just because he's with me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? At, at that point, it turns on him as well. So, I mean, like, and and there's all kinds of stories, bro. Like, yeah. there's all kinds of stories. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes it's they, they, they cater to him and they see them the way they treat me as a black person. And 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 that doesn't make him feel well good at all. So, I mean, he's seen both sides of it. We've both seen both sides of it. And uh, it's it's really a thing where we was like, you know what? We're going to talk about this and we're going to keep on talking about it. So it's not really like a, a civil rights movement in terms of how I see it. It's not an activist kind of thing as I see it. It's just not, it's just, we're saying we're not going to be silent anymore. We're not going to, we're going to at least talk to each other. We're going to at least, we have a multi uh, mixed group of guys in the band, different, different cultures, different, you know, races. And um, we're not, we're not going to, just be silent all the time. We're going to always continue to, to enlighten each other and uh, and share things with each other so that we can all know how impactful it is to, to play these things out, to play these things and to play together and have a family and know what our, purpose, our true purpose is. And it's, it's really to fight against all of these things that are negative, you know, in our, in our everyday surroundings. You know, because I tell people all the time as a musician, you don't, we don't know or have the luxury of being racist because we don't, we, we don't, we're not ever in situations where there's just an all white band 
or an all black man ever. Right. It doesn't happen anymore. Maybe it used to happen in the seventies, maybe the eighties. I don't know, but in two thousand and eighteen, that is not a scenario, and it is a very welcome, yep, thing. So, um, so I mean, like we don't we don't see color literally. Like I know colorblind is like a very cliche thing, mm-hmm. but I mean, like that, that's that's a true story. That's a very true. We look out in the audience and we see all sorts of colors and uh it's just beautiful and amazing to see that music brings people together like that i've I've seen the olympics for as long as i can remember and i haven't seen that in the olympics and that's supposed to be something to bring people together but um i haven't seen what i see in music in in anything else so to be a part of that that's gratifying but that's the message of this record you know it's just not just no more silence, you know, just talk about it. Like swagism, our swag is our funk. So in that funk, and just as the poem says, in our, our, our swagism is our position. It's the role that we're taking on. The position, we're, we're going to play music, but we're going to play with a purpose and a message. And that's to, to help people and, and to show people that, that you don't have, we don't have to be a part of this culture that says we have to separate or we have to be indifferent and we have to go through all of this stuff, you know, because of our background, our ethnics, ethnic, you know, ethnic backgrounds or whatever the situation is, uh, our advantages or disadvantages, all that stuff can be wiped out if we just come together and work together. And I mean, I, I mean, that's cliche too, because a lot of people have said that before and it's never been done, but we're trying to be examples of it. So it doesn't make it false. A cliche sometimes is just persistent truth, you know, (laughs) that keeps coming through. Right. Uh, Well, that, that kind of, that got the last question was what, you know, what's the message and uh, that that's, that's really beautiful. Um, Is there anything else that you particularly want to add as a, as I, you know, sort of write a narrative story about ghost note to present to the world? I mean, I think that, that, I mean, that is the message. I mean, it's obviously the message through the music of drum, the, the mess, music of drummers. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's also, if you think about it, me and Nate are the older guys in the band. We won't disclose our ages, but <laughs> most of the guys, uh, every member of our band, uh, with the exception of me, Nate, and Sly, got their feet wet on their first tour with our band. And so that is like a mentoring thing or mentorship. That is a thing that I love about what's going on, you know, uh, with, with that's a second thing. That's like a um, an extension to what we're about. You know, we're mentoring these young guys, giving them how to grind it out it seems weird to say that your first tour grinding is one of the could be one of the highlights of your careers and stuff like that because they're getting to do stuff in the way that i didn't get to do when i was 20 years old or 21 like some of these cats so i think everybody's old enough to drink now so we're not (laughs) being bad except taz except well taz doesn't get to really hang out with us yet 
Um, but uh, but we, I mean, that's the thing. The, the extended thing to, uh, there are a lot of young musicians that we mentor and we take on the road with us. Like, we don't just leave it at, hey, how you doing? Let's take a selfie. You know, like, we, I mean, like, we really are into bringing young, younger musicians up and and helping them, you know, hey, call me. Hey, text me. Send me a video. What are you working on? Hey, listen to this. Check this out. I know you like all the new people, but check these old guys out. Check these guys out. This is where it begins. And having those kind of relationships and being able to, like, when you come to those cities, being able to, to call those guys, hey, man, learn this song so you can come up. I want to call you up and play with us so that we can have moments like we had with a Taz or J.D. Beck or, you know, all these other young Domi from Berkeley, who's a female keyboard player, uh, key, keyboardist phenomenal probably she's going to be the next sensation I, i'm sure of it so i mean it's it's just so many guys there's so many guys that we do this, this stuff with and um it's me personally i get i get so much joy out of helping that the next generation you know so my thing is when i get old i want to enjoy music i don't want to i don't some of the stuff i see disappoints me because i feel like if i'm if i'm an old guy and i gotta hear this shit I'm gonna be upset, you know. <laughs> so I get a I get a kick out of it. It's, it's partially it's about ten percent selfish because I do want to be able to enjoy music when I go see and when when, when I, once I get to an older age. But it's also just because I want to help people, you know, be more intuitive in in, in being versatile, you know, on, on their craft. So yeah, so that's the extension. That would be the last thing I would want to add because it's it is an extension to what we represent and what we're trying to do. So. That, that's beautiful. And, it, and, you know, it's a worldview and a, and, a, and a way of living and a way of creating music and, and just being as a human that, that is positive, not only for listeners, but also for everybody that's in your circle. Um, and thanks for that Super Bowl reference. Was that, was that selfie a Super Bowl reference? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could have let it go, but I had it. I had it. I had to go now. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the 21 Soul Music Podcast. If you like what we do, please subscribe. You can find us on Mixcloud, and you can go over to YouTube and find our video series as well. We're also available on Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else podcasts are found. A big shout-out to our producer, Mr. Nick Perry. Our show is recorded in East Philadelphia at the Gropadope Room. I want to say thank you to musicians who contribute music to the world and to this podcast. And a big thank you to those of you who have taken the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show.